Welcome, welcome, welcome everyone to The Dark Parts, a show where we explore the darkest parts of history, the world, and your mind. I'm your host, Heath, and with me today is the lovely Queen of Scream, Daphne. You forgetting about me? <laughs> I almost did. What's <laughs> I'm, happening? I'm good. Um, t- we're actually recording this the day before Thanksgiving. So tomorrow it's just going to be Heath and I. I'm really excited to cook some good food. I know I said that last week, but I'm very excited. And to spend the day with my favorite guy. Yeah, we're just going to be hanging out, watching movies, eating food, getting fat, all of the good things. Yeah, hopefully we're keeping you company today if you're alone. I know a lot of us are alone or just with our one person or your roommate or whomstever else. So hopefully we can keep you company with some spooky spooky stories. Yeah, before we get into today's episode, I wanted to tell you guys that we do have merch available in our store on our website. Head over to thedarkparts.com and click the shop tab. Something really cool happened last week. So last week in the Rougarou episode of The Dark Parts, we talked about Rougarou Fest in Louisiana. And guess what happened? So I was posting about the Rougarou episode on Facebook when a lovely listener of ours named Leanne from Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin, got us into contact with the person who puts on Rougarou Fest. So Leanne's fiancé is Benjamin McElroy. They're both really awesome. And Jonathan started Rougarou Fest. So we started talking to them. And they're so nice. And Benjamin actually sent Heath a shirt from a past Rougarou Fest. And he had a really funny story that went along with it. Yeah, yeah. It was it was honestly awesome. He said he got arrested in his Rougarou Fest shirt and he wanted to send me his shirt, which I think is so fucking badass. So big shout out to you guys, Jonathan Foray. You do amazing work. Please keep up with Rougarou Fest, even though it wasn't able to happen this year because of COVID. We're hoping we can visit next year. Yeah, we would love to see you guys next year. Leanne, Benjamin, and Jonathan, thank you very much. You guys are all amazing. So I just wanted to give that little well, shout out in this episode before we head on to a whole new tale. Also, I wanted to throw out there that we do have a P.O. box now. So if you feel like you want to send us something, it can be funny. It can be a card, a letter, whatever you want. We do have a P.O. box for you guys to do that. Yeah, if you guys want to do that, we got a bunch of emails. I know we said this on our other podcast going west, but we got a bunch of emails from people asking if we had a P.O. box. So we got one. So if anyone is interested just head over to thedarkparts.com and hit the contact tab, and then it has the address there, just just in case anybody cares or is interested. Awesome, guys. So let's get into today's episode. One of the biggest questions that lingers in our world today is, are we alone? It's estimated that for every grain of sand on the Earth, there is an Earth-like planet capable of sustaining life and plentiful in resources. I'm asking that all my strangers keep an open mind and understand that the possibility of extraterrestrial life is more likely than not. So put on your I Want to Believe shirt and crank up some Eiffel 65 and join us for part one of our interstellar journey to find out why aliens chose the 4th of July in 1996 to ruin Will Smith's barbecue and what close encounter drove Richard Dreyfuss to lose his fucking mind. This is UFO The Sightings. Let's take a look back in time to get a better idea of what created widespread intrigue and curiosity regarding extraterrestrial life. Although we could go back centuries to talk about some of the first recorded sightings in the United States by Puritans, 
we're going to skip ahead into the 20th century where the fun really began. During World War II, mysterious aerial phenomena had been witnessed by many pilots flying over Western Europe. The pilots explained that the crafts they saw were glowing red, white, and orange and were making wild 90-degree turns and almost toying with the pilots before vanishing into the night without a trace. These sightings were so common that eventually the unidentified crafts were now being called Kraut Fireballs. That's right, Allied forces believed the moving objects to be secret weapons developed by Axis powers. That is, until Japan and Germany reported their own sightings. The U.S. 415th Night Fighter Squadron coined the term Foo Fighters for the strange aircrafts. And no, Dave Grohl wasn't in a spaceship beaming people up and forcing them to listen to the song Hero on repeat. Oh my god. (laughs) Foo was actually a term a cartoonist coined in his cartoon strips, which came from foobar, meaning fucked up beyond recognition. It's also used to represent an unspecified entity. And of course, fighter was just another name for a military aircraft, so in the end, you get Foo Fighter. And I will say that I have not even once Obviously, we're all thinking of Foo Fighters, the band. I have not ever once been like, what does that mean? Yeah, I know. Now we know. I literally not once in my life was like, hmm, I wonder what Foo Fighters is. Yeah, odd. (laughs) So interestingly enough, Nazi Germany did try to replicate the unidentified flying objects that they witnessed flying in the skies. And in fact, there was a German prototype called the SAC AS-6 which was built with circular wings in 1944, and it looked very similar to what we consider UFOs to look like today. So round and flat. A U.S. 8th Air Force pilot named Charles R. Bastion claimed to have one of the first encounters with a Foo Fighter while he was flying over Belgium. He described the craft like two fog lights flying at high rates of speed that could change direction rapidly. Because there were now so many accounts of unidentified flying objects, the U.S. Navy decided to conduct experiments regarding aviators' vertigo, claiming that it could be causing these pilots to hallucinate and see things that are not there. Which sounds silly. Yeah, they're just trying to come up. I mean, they're grasping at straws, trying to figure out, oh, what could this actually be? Maybe it's unexplained. And I will say, sorry to interrupt you, but I will say that... it's, it's always really funny to me when people try to make up explanations for ghosts and UFOs and things that you can't explain. But if you think about it, everything on this earth doesn't really make sense. You know, how, how we're here, how we communicate, how we eat, like how humans are created and uh, like just everything, the, how we're just made of blood and water and bones, you know, and skin. It's Everything is weird, so why not? Our world is incredibly complex, and to think that there aren't some strange things that happen, I mean, think about this for for, for a second. I think it was something like 90% of sea creatures in the ocean haven't even been discovered yet. Like, That's so scary to me. It's so very strange. We live in a very crazy and strange world. Right, so things like UFOs doesn't have to be too much weirder than what we already have. Yeah, and when you have, like, literal millions of planets that could potentially be inhabitable, to think that there is not other life forms is a little bit arrogant. I agree. But I think because there's such a big question mark regarding all of this, that's what's 
off to people is they just can't wrap their heads around it because they don't know it. Exactly. Although many movies and TV shows often depict the extraterrestrial life forms as hostile, there is also a completely different take on why these spacecrafts decided to pay us a visit. Some researchers believe that due to the fact that humans on Earth have become war-hungry, violent, and selfish, alien life forms are keeping a close eye on us to make sure we don't do anything stupid like blow up our whole freaking planet. In fact, there have been so many UFO sightings near a number of nuclear power, weaponry, and technology sites throughout history. For example, in 1948, near the Los Alamos and Sandia, New Mexico facilities, what was described as green fireballs could be seen floating in the night sky. These were also the same facilities where the atomic bomb was first developed and tested for use. Also, a declassified FBI document written in 1950 mentioned the sightings of flying saucers that measured 50 feet in diameter near the New Mexico facilities, and apparently over a dozen personnel were interviewed in Nevada atomic testing sites who explained that they were ordered by the government to monitor unidentified flying crafts because they were a common occurrence. And before you say, well, it could just be enemy forces trying to gather intel regarding our weaponry, well, every witness described a craft that had speed capability that was out of this world. Which I think is something that's really important to take note of because like every every person really who has seen a UFO, that's one thing that they'll say, that it moved so fast, faster than anything even in this day and age, in 2020. Even if this was a while ago and someone's remembering it, they're like, this is not even a speed that we're currently capable of. And also what's crazy about that is I was reading some articles that were talking about The fact that we're about 100 years behind where we should be, technologically speaking. That's it. I wonder what, like, how do they know that? And we're going to get more into this, but there's a lot of things the government knows that that we don't know. Oh, yeah. Which is horrifying. I hate that thought. I don't like that they're hiding shit. But yeah, I mean, one of the biggest uh, reoccurring factors about UFO sightings is that people who have seen them claim still to this day that they know what they saw, and they, they're not going back on their words. So they're very, very sure that what they saw was a UFO. On Thursday, March 16, 1967, Captain Eric Carlson and First Lieutenant Walt Feigl were on duty at the Malmstrom Launch Facility located in central Montana when multiple radio reports came in regarding UFOs flying around in the area. Feigl and Carlson were underground at the time in the launch control center when the reports came in. Then, all of a sudden, alarms started to blast throughout the complex. Feigl noticed that one of the missiles was now offline and in a no-go status. That means it's not able to be launched. Then, in rapid succession, an entire flight of ICBM missiles went offline and became inoperable. By this time, information was coming into headquarters from multiple sources concerning an unidentified flying object which had hovered over the missile silos and seemed to be scanning them, which is very, very strange. It took an entire day for maintenance to bring the missiles back online and back on alert, 
and when they did, it was determined that the missiles hadn't lost power, but their guidance and control systems had malfunctioned without explanation. So they can't, they can't understand why this happened. But many believe this was the work of extraterrestrial forces. And what's really strange about that, or the, the, I guess the one part of this story that really freaks me out, is the fact that these UFOs that were seen were scanning those missiles, which I think were scanning them to see if they were potentially a threat and see, like, what they were made out of and, like, you know what I mean, Scan- just scanning them. It makes sense because, so going back to the whole speed thing, if, you know, let's just say this is all a very real thing and these UFOs can go so fast, which means they are so much more technologically advanced than we are. So what's to say that they don't have some kind of laser that they can send down and turn something off or determine if it's dangerous or kind of scan what that is, which is what a lot of people believed what happened in this incident. And considering, like you said, we're 100 years at least, I'm sure, behind technologically, what's to say they're not more advanced and that doesn't exist for them? We just don't have that technology. It doesn't mean they don't. Exactly. They could very well be capable of scanning our missiles. And if you think I'm crazy talking about this story, there are actually multiple reports of these things happening at launch facilities and nuclear complexes and things like that. Well, it's funny that you say that if you think I'm crazy, because so many people with who see UFOs or who have sightings like this are looked at as if they're crazy. But the only reason is because the people who are thinking they're crazy haven't seen it for their own eyes. So they just think it doesn't exist. Like it's like it's a made up thing just because they haven't seen it. You know, I, I mean, we all have our own feelings about aliens and extraterrestrials. But at the end of the day, wh- what's so crazy about the thought that something else could exist? Who knows? Yeah. And we're definitely going to talk about how some very, very prominent people throughout American history actually believe in aliens and UFOs, including multiple former presidents. So going back in time a bit, one of the first photograph sightings of a UFO was taken by a farmer and his wife in a small town in Oregon. On May 11, 1950, a woman named Evelyn Trent, who lived on a farm in McMinnville, Oregon, with her husband Paul, was outside feeding her caged rabbits around 7.30 p.m. when she saw something in the sky she had never seen before. She saw a slow-moving metal disc heading towards her farm from the northeast. When she noticed the unidentified object, she yelled for her husband to come quick and bring his camera. After watching the object for a brief moment of time, Paul eventually snapped two photographs with his camera that evening. And, you know, since this is in May, it's still light outside at this time, so you can see it. And Paul took one photo, which shows a flying metal object, and then 30 seconds later took the second photo as he changed his position, running several yards away to capture it. Evelyn described the object as being bronze on top, silver on the bottom, and about the size of a large parachute, but possibly bigger. And I think everybody should go look at this photo. It's on our Instagram and our social medias, Instagram at the Dark Parts Podcast, Twitter at the Dark Parts Pod. And then if you want to look up the dark parts on Facebook, it's there too. The photos are really interesting. So go take a look. I know everybody has their opinions about credibility, but just take a look. After Paul took the infamous photos, the object disappeared with great speed. 
And what's most interesting about this case is that the Trents didn't immediately take the photographs to the media or the press. In fact, film was quite expensive back then, and he still had three negatives to use, which he ended up using to snap some Mother's Day photos of a family picnic. Eventually, the role of film was developed, and naturally, the Trents showed the UFO photos to a few friends, who then urged them to hand them over to the local news. On June 8, 1950, the McMinnville Telephone Register printed the photos which made the front page of the newspaper. The Trents were known as good and honest people, which really added a lot of credibility to the photos. And two days after the local paper posted those photos, Portland and Los Angeles ran their own articles about the photos, and now the sighting was gaining a lot of attention. Eventually, Life magazine reprinted the photos in its June 26, 1950 issue, and people were dumbfounded. With the photos being seen around the nation, Paul and Evelyn were invited to a taping in New York of television show We the People, but that was the only publicity event they attended. Over the years, countless researchers, including the FBI and the U.S. Air Force, studied the photos for authenticity and could not determine them to be fake. During the 1960s, a University of Colorado physicist named Edward Condon was tasked with making the final report on the Trent photos, and this was his conclusion. Quote, This is one of the few UFO cases in which all factors investigated, geometric, physiological, and physical, appear to be consistent with the assertion that an extraordinary flying object silvery, metallic, disc-shaped, tens of meters in diameter, and evidently artificial, flew within sight of two witnesses. And the Trents also never made any money off the photos, and they didn't seek to become celebrities, although there is a UFO festival held in McMinnville every year, which oh, is yeah. very funny. And we're, and we're fucking going. Well, we're not far from McMinnville, so yeah, yeah exactly. We're pretty close, so we should definitely go check that out. We're only on episode 12, and there's already two festivals we need to go to. Yeah, we're literally going to go on a U.S. tour of festivals, I swear. I'm so down. But before the Trents took those photos, many people had claimed to have seen UFOs as well. In fact, the sighting that coined the term flying saucers took place in June of 1947, when a pilot from Washington State was flying on a business trip. Kenneth Arnold was flying from Chehalis, Washington to Yakima, Washington, when he received a radio transmission offering $5,000 in reward money for the discovery of a U.S. Marine Corps C-46 transport plane that had crashed somewhere in the mountains near Mount Rainier. So naturally, he made a quick detour to see if he could spot the wreckage from the air but Kenneth would discover something much different that day. It was just before 3 p.m. on June 24, 1947, when he gave up on his search for the wrecked plane and started heading back towards his initial route to Yakima. That's when he saw a bright light shining towards him that almost seemed like the reflection of a mirror. Kenneth thought that he could be flying dangerously close to another plane, but when he scanned the air, he didn't notice any planes near him. Then, just 30 seconds after he saw the shining light, Kenneth notices a series of bright flashes just north of Mount Rainier. He tried to come up with an explanation for the flying fleet that he was witnessing, but when he positioned closer, 
he noticed the unusual aircrafts didn't have any wings, and they also didn't have any tail wings. So, no wings whatsoever on these crafts. Which today, like all of our airplanes to this day, still have wings. Yeah. And this was in 1947, so what the heck. The fleet of crafts were now passing in front of Mount Rainier and looked slightly darker than the snow on the mountain. Arnold explained that sometimes the crafts would tip on their side and they were so thin that they looked invisible when they did so. He also said the flying objects flew erratically and made quick maneuvers that he had never seen. Then he told officials that the crafts were shaped like that of a saucer, disc, or pie pan. A local prospector to the area corroborated Arnold's story, explaining that he too had seen six oval-shaped flying objects through his small telescope that same day. On June 26th and 27th, newspapers started referring to the unknown aircrafts as flying saucers. There was a full military investigation conducted, and they somehow concluded that what Kenneth Arnold had seen was a mirage. And just a few weeks later, the biggest and most notable UFO incident in U.S. history would occur. Let's take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. Guys, we have to tell you about a super awesome new game that's perfect for a night in this holiday season. Masters of Mystery presents the ultimate murder mystery games that you can host yourself at the venue of your choice or virtually via video call with your friends, family, or colleagues. Host a 1920s Gatsby-themed murder mystery dinner party. The year is 1923. A shot is fired at Jay Glitzerby's New York mansion, and a guest is dead. The Bouncing Barnacle, a pirate ship that is just docked in Santa Tortuga. While enjoying drinks at the local tavern, a murder is discovered, and a treasure map goes missing. Who can crack the mystery? Attend a grand feast at the Toadwort School of Magic and Mayhem to solve which witch or wizard stole the philosopher's scone. Or solve a murder in the Wild West. The time is high noon and the deputy drink water has been shot dead. Who done it? Masters of Mystery offer a game for every occasion, including Halloween or Christmas-themed murder mystery nights perfect for the holiday season. Seriously, this is such a fun thing to do. If you can't see your family and you want to do something fun with them, all you have to do is visit their website, check out their wide variety of games, and simply download the materials immediately after purchase. So liven up your lazy Saturday night, host a dinner party that your guests will always remember, or build better relationships with colleagues. Get 15% off your order by using code DARKPARTS15 when you visit mastersofmystery.com. That's code DARKPARTS15 for 15% off your order when you visit mastersofmystery.com. You guys are going to love this experience. Now back to the episode. In early July of 1947, a New Mexico rancher named W.W. Mac Brazel, and his uh, nickname was Mac, which is a very interesting name, W.W. Mac Brazel, found debris of some sort of wreckage on his property about 75 miles north of Roswell, New Mexico. He notified the local sheriff, George Wilcox, who in turn brought it to the attention of Colonel William Blanchard, who was a commanding officer at the Roswell Army Airfield. 
The next day, the airfield made a statement writing, The many rumors regarding the flying disc became a reality yesterday when the intelligence office of the 509th Bomb Group, the 8th Air Force, Roswell Army Airfield, was fortunate enough to gain possession of a disc through the cooperation of one of the local ranchers and the sheriff's office of Chavez County. The following day, U.S. Army officials changed their story, stating that the debris that was found was actually a weather balloon. The Army even went so far as to make Jesse Marcel, who was the initial intelligence officer who oversaw the crash site, pose for photos with materials they brought in to further their narrative of a weather balloon. But get this, in 1994, skeptical researchers pushed the government to be transparent about the weather balloon story, so they released a report. The report explained that the weather balloon story was actually a bogus story to cover up for a secret covert operation. The then-classified project was called Project Mogul, where apparently the army created high-flying balloons equipped with microphones that were designed to fly over the USSR and detect sound waves at a distance and monitor the Soviets' attempts to create and test their own atomic bomb. So basically, they give a statement saying, yes, we have a flying saucer in our possession, and then they say, oh no, it's just a weather balloon, and they force some guy to take pictures with some materials used for a weather balloon. Then, years later, they say, oh, it's not actually a weather balloon, it was actually a secret covert operation where we created these flying balloons with microphones to make sure that the Russians weren't creating bombs. And Jesse Marcel, who... Had, they had made him take photos in front of the weather balloon to kind of be like, see, it was just a weather balloon, so that they could post it and give it to, give it to the media. Um, he came forward years later and basically said, yeah, they made me do this. They made me lie about it. Yeah, he said, like, that was complete bullshit. They made me stand with these materials for a weather balloon. But he said, we all know the actual truth. Yeah, and I mean, most people don't believe this whole story at all about the USSR and how they just needed the balloons to detect sound waves at a distance, that whole thing. And in fact, key witnesses claim to have seen alien bodies being taken from the crash site. So when this all happened. So more people are coming forward and saying the government is lying about this. But of course, the government had an explanation for this as well, claiming the bodies that people had seen were merely parachute test dummies for Project Mogul. Yeah, fucking right. And at some point, we'll probably put together an entire Roswell UFO episode. But for now, let's move on to some other sightings that took place. On April 24, 1964, near Socorro, New Mexico, a police officer named Lonnie Zamora had been on patrol when he received a call about a possible motor vehicle accident. Zamora advised his dispatcher that he would check it out. And when he arrived to the location... Zamora radioed again that he was going to check the car down in the arroyo, which for those of you who don't know what an arroyo is, it's basically a steep-sided gully formed by water over time, so kind of like a little gully. Shortly after his first call, he radioed yet again and said, it looks like a balloon. He then requested backup and Police Sergeant Chavez arrived on the scene. Zamora led the sergeant into the arroyo 
and pointed out some burning brush and smoldering grass, as if something had taken off from that exact location. And when Zamora was questioned about the event, he explained that he was chasing a speeding car when he received the call to check out a possible vehicle collision. Initially, upon arrival, Officer Zamora saw what he believed to be an upside-down white car from about 100 yards away. He explained that the object was almost like aluminum. It was whitish but not chrome, and it was shaped like the letter O. He then told investigators that he observed two small people in white coveralls beside the shiny object. He then heard an ignition and witnessed a blue and orange flame spewing from underneath the object and it quickly raised from the ground and sped off into the sky. The weirdest part about this story is that when the site was investigated, there were clear landing gear impressions in the dirt and there was also smoldering bushes and grass in the center of the site as if they were burned by that flame that was coming down. Zamora also noted that he saw a red insignia on the side of the craft before it left the area. And following the incident, many newspapers reported on the sighting and Officer Zamora's personal life was changed. The media flocked his little town to interview him, and the incident, of course, made national news. Unfortunately, the event also had a pretty negative effect. People began to insinuate that Officer Zamora was crazy and he eventually retired as an officer to save his little town from widespread publicity. But throughout all the good and bad, Lonnie Zamora had never changed his story, and the event is said to be one of the most credible sightings to date. Which makes sense because it was investigated and all the things that he said lined up with what was seen on the ground, with the burnt brush and the markings. So it's just sad that it basically ruined his whole image just because he was explaining something that he really believed that he saw. Yeah, and in a documentary that I was watching about UFO sightings, they were basically saying that there's this stigma of people who tell other people that they have seen UFOs. Like, there's this bad stigma where almost the government has made it to where anybody who has seen a UFO is basically a crazy person and not credible. Which... That they're plant. I feel like they're making us feel that way, so that when we hear a story, we're like, "That person's a little kooky." Right? But exactly. That's not fair. Yeah, that's that's not fair because these people could be completely normal people who know what they saw, and their sightings are being uh, discouraged. So let's move forward a little bit in time. On September nineteenth, nineteen seventy-six, an incident in Tehran, Iran, occurred that had citizens panicked but also intrigued. Multiple calls were made regarding bright lights in the sky, so an F four fighter jet was tasked with investigating the lights. But when it got close to the glowing object, the plane's instruments were blacked out, which forced the F four to return to base. Thinking that this particular F-4 was maybe just in need of maintenance, another F-4 was sent out to observe the object. But this time, the plane was able to lock in its radar on the object. That's when the pilot of the second F-4 witnessed the flying object release what looked like a missile towards his plane. The pilot then prepared to fight back with its own weapons, but again, his instruments malfunctioned. The pilot was able to maneuver his way back to base unharmed, but the incident caused Iran to investigate it, 
and they asked for the help of the U.S. military since they seemingly had been through this a time or two before. And again, the U.S. military is coming up with excuses. So the U.S. wrote off the lights in the sky as being the planet Jupiter, which apparently was visible in the sky that night. They also claimed that the second plane had a long history of instrumental problems, and this gave the sighting much less credibility. As far as the missile goes, it was determined to be a meteor shower that happened that night. For everything that happened that night, there's an equal excuse for that incident. Which seems to be the case for every single major sighting ever. Exactly. Someone makes something up that, that makes people believe that it can't possibly be what you think it might be. Right. And they just, they just want to make sense of things that they can't make sense of. So four years later, in December of 1980, members of the U.S. Air Force were stationed at two different British Royal Air Force bases, Woodbridge and Bentwaters, when they witnessed colorful lights hovering over the Rendlesham Forest, which is located about 100 miles northeast of London. One of the men entered the forest to investigate when he stumbled upon a spacecraft. He told his superiors, and the next day, they investigated the forest for themselves and confirmed that there had been considerable damage done to the trees in that area, and they also reported higher-than-usual levels of radiation in that location. Just a few days later, more reports of sightings started to flood in. Lieutenant Colonel Charles Holt was able to audio record his experience with the strange lights. The audio is about 18 minutes long, and it's a little hard to understand, but if you'd like to know more, it's available on YouTube for your curious ear holes. I would have inserted it in this episode, but it's really long. And again, it's really hard to hear uh, the audio. You can make it out, but it's kind of difficult. So if you guys are interested, just go check it out. And you can find that by just looking up Colonel Holt's uh, British UFO audio file or something like that. In November of 1989, what's known as the Belgium Wave occurred. Over 13,500 citizens witnessed a large triangle-shaped UFO hovering above them. This event is said to be the most widely experienced UFO sighting of modern history. There was no logical explanation for the event, and the only evidence they had was the word of the thousands of people who witnessed it. I think that's enough. <laughs> yeah, 13,000 people saw these lights, saw this... Uh, Belgian wave. I don't think they're making it up. So the Belgian Air Force reached out to the UK's Ministry of Defense, but the fact that the object didn't seem hostile, the case was eventually closed and investigations ceased to continue. So they were basically like, well, they didn't seem like they were going to hurt us, so let's just drop this fucking case. People knew what they had seen, though, and said that a second set of lights that night had even made its way over to the first set. The craft was flat and triangular in shape, with lights glowing underneath of it. So I just don't know how you can... Basically, I think this is one of those ones where they're like, we literally don't know what to say about this, so we're not going to really investigate. So let's fast forward to the 21st century. Between 2014 and 2015, a number of UFO sightings had U.S. Navy pilots really confused. During training missions, these pilots detected unidentified objects flying in hyperspeed at altitudes greater than 30,000 feet. 
And it was apparent to these pilots that the crafts also didn't have any visible means of propulsion, meaning that there were no wings or exhaust or jets of any kind, which we have said before. So this is a, this is common in a sighting. Yeah, exactly. There, it's very common for there not to be an exhaust or any sort of way that would move this craft through the air. Lieutenant Ryan Graves, who was an F-18 pilot at the time, explained that a fleet of UFOs followed his squadron up and down the east coast of the U.S. for months in 2014. In 2015, a famous video surfaced of a U.S. Navy pilot locking radar on a UFO during a training mission. And the pilot can actually be heard saying, what the fuck is that, man? In the video, and you can see a strange disc-like aircraft on the pilot's radar, and the pilot appears to be adjusting to keep track of the object. The object then begins to rotate in mid-air, and eventually it zips away and off the pilot's radar for good. And this video is really strange. I, I don't n- really know what to make of it. It seems authentic in my opinion, and the video is titled Go Fast, and it can be found on YouTube. So it's kind of hard to see what's going on, but it's very clear this little object that they're focused on. Yeah, it's really, really strange. The first time I saw that video, I was like, I mean, what else could this be? It does not look like any sort of aircraft or plane that I've ever seen in my life. It looks like a spacecraft, and just the way that it tips on its side and the maneuvers that it makes while this pilot is locked on it with its radar, it's just incredible. And then all of a sudden, it just zips away super fast. And the fact that these guys are pilots, so and they haven't seen anything like it, and their reactions are kind of priceless because they're just so confused at what they're seeing. So I think that is worth something, for sure. Yeah, and I couldn't find the name of the pilot who took this video. I have no idea. And I don't think that the military does either, because they were basically made a statement saying, I don't know how these got out to the public. I don't know who took these. So I think it could be a secret. I'm not really sure. If anybody has that information, you can let us know. And since it's an older video, it just randomly got released in 2015, which is kind of scary if you think about it, because if this is something that they were keeping just locked away from the public, like what else is there? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's probably a lot that we don't know. And that's one of the things about doing a UFO episode. I was like, I can't just do a part one. I can't just do a one-parter. I have to do multiple episodes because there's just so much. There's so many sightings, and uh, it's, it's honestly just crazy how much information we don't know. All in all, in North America alone, there have been over 6,000 confirmed UFO sightings, the latest being from a man in Eden Prairie, Minnesota, on November 19th, 2020. UFO sightings are also up this year, marked at about 99 incidents so far. So that's 99 incidents of sightings of UFOs in 2020. There's a group called MUFON, which stands for the Mutual UFO Network, and includes about 4,000 volunteers from around the world that have uh, been documenting these sightings for over 20 years now and have filed around 1,226 reports since the group was created. January of this year reported 628 UFO sightings alone. The fact of the matter is that, with all these incidents dating back centuries, could some or all of them be true? And by the way, when I said 99, I meant 99 incidents in the U.S. and 628 around the world in January. 
And it can't be hard to believe that in a vast amount of space we call the universe, there isn't other life forms with more advanced technologies than us. Here's a few quotes regarding the unknown. Former President Jimmy Carter said, I don't laugh at folks anymore when they say they've seen UFOs. I've seen one myself. Carl Sagan, who is the original host of The Cosmos, said, After giving lectures on almost any subject, I'm often asked, do you believe in UFOs? I'm always struck by how the question is phrased. The suggestion is that this is a matter of belief and not evidence. I'm almost never asked, how good is the evidence that UFOs are alien spaceships? And last but not least, former President Gerald Ford said, Are we to assume that everyone who says he has seen UFOs is an unreliable witness? I think we owe it to the people to establish credibility regarding UFOs and to produce the greatest possible enlightenment on this subject. So, strangers, what did we learn today? We learned that the government is most likely full of shit and covering up the fact that alien life forms and UFOs exist. See the 2001 National Press Disclosure Project event and thank me later. We also learned that aliens probably think that we're the actual violent and aggressive douchebags and that they have to babysit us because we're too irresponsible to not blow up our own planet into smithereens with our who's got the bigger dick nukes. And lastly, we learned that if you ever see a UFO, don't let assholes try to persuade you into thinking that what you saw has a perfectly good explanation. Because it might not. And you very well could have witnessed something thousands of other people have, but the government either wants to keep it hush, or they're too stubborn to admit that they aren't the only ones with power in the universe. Today's horror tip comes from the film Event Horizon. If you're tasked with the mission to find a spacecraft that disappeared years earlier and reappeared somehow later on, best skip that mission. Because that motherfucker has probably been through some black holes and parallel universes, and most likely there's some evil shit lurking on that spacecraft. Even if the creator of the vessel says it's a good idea, tell him he's weird and leave it alone. Leave it alone. Be the weenie. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode of The Dark Parts. Next week will be part two, UFO, The Abductions. Yes, thank you guys so much for listening. It means so much to us. We love this little show and we really hope to keep doing it. And the only way we're going to keep doing it is if you guys keep listening. So share with a friend, write us a review over on Apple Podcasts if you want to. That really helps us get recognized. So yeah, thank you guys so much and happy holidays. Thank you guys so much for listening. Like Daphne said, Share it with a friend. Tell your family. Tell your Aunt Cletus and your... Aunt your... Cletus? <laughs> you always say, you said that last uh, time. Uncle Cletus and what is that? Uh, uh, <laughs> tell your Uncle Frank and your Aunt Barbara about the show. Let them know it's popping over here. And uh, yeah, we love you guys. All right, strangers. We'll see you next time. In the dark parts. <laughs>